2: I hope that you're all enjoying this month of double fun, and I hope you're not too disappointed that with this episode it all comes to an end. Before we get started, though, I have my usual notices, which are all shout-outs to my various social media accounts on Facebook and Twitter, as well as my website queensofenglandpodcast.com and my all-important Patreon page, where you can donate to the show. Weddings and podcasts are crazy expensive, while the former is, at any rate, so anything you can chuck my way would be greatly appreciated. I would also like to thank my latest monthly donator, Virginia, who is currently my favourite person from the month of February. You can join her in her generosity at patreon.com/slash Queens of England Podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England Podcast. Episode 42, Anne Boleyn The Rise. love you some queens who are unknown, others that are quite well known, and there are some who have songs written about them by Dutch symphonic rock bands. The extract from the song that I just played is the part of Anne's life that I will be talking about today, something that can be neatly described as her rise. Henry VIII's pursuit of Anne Boleyn began sometime between 1525 and 1526, and it seems in this period he attempts to win her over to become his mistress in the traditional courtly way. This was courtly love, but with a royal touch, and had worked on many women before, but Anne was different. She refused him. She was not the same as her sister Mary. She saw her virginity and sexuality as being like the Wizard of Oz. Once viewed or expended, the power it held would be gone. When it was that she decided to accept Henry on the condition of marriage is unknown, Henry's marriage to Catherine was undoubtedly on the rocks thanks to the perfect storm of events that I described back in episode 38, but let's not forget that no English king had annulled a marriage since the conquest. Queens had been imprisoned or exiled, but never had the validity of their marriage vows been put into question. If you listened to my supplemental last week, you'll remember Henry's almost desperation for this woman, his longing. He could often be a bit of a man-child, wanting and wanting and not accepting rejection. He would not put his feelings for Anne aside until he had claimed her as a mistress. It's important to recognise, however, that there is precious little evidence to suggest Anne as the ultimate other woman, this calculating schemer who engineered this whole plan to make herself queen. Historian Eric Ives sums it up well when he says, quote, We cannot, of course, know whether Anne did suspect that the arrogant marriage was vulnerable. Had Henry shared with her his concern about a son to succeed him? We cannot say either that had the divorce not materialised, Anne might not, in the end, have become the king's mistress. Thus the sympathetic can see Anne's resistance as standing out for costly principle, the cynical gloss it as a calculated gamble, while the realistic can point to the discouraging prospects of a dumped royal mistress. Now this is all assuming, of course, that it was Anne who was holding back on the matter of sex. G.W. Bernard, in his biography of Anne, makes the case that it was in fact Henry that held back from having sex with her. He points out that Henry and Anne had already been intimate with each other, I called it second base in the supplemental, and that if he had wanted to go further, then it would have been impossible for her to stop him. His argument is that Henry had exercised restraint on this matter because he wanted to make Anne his wife, and knew that to make her his queen, her virginity had to be maintained. Having a mistress was one thing, but Queen's had to be morally beyond reproach. I don't personally go along with this argument. I find Ives' description of the course of events more convincing. Henry had had no compunctions about having mistresses before, and if his concern was that Anne had to be a virgin before marriage, then he should have refrained from any sexual contact at all. Second base seems rather like a technicality, rather than trying to keep Anne whiter than white. He refrained from forcing his desires on her, in my view, not because of some high-minded desire to make her queen, but because it was not the chivalric thing to do. It wasn't noble, it wasn't the done thing. Anne was a noble lady of the court, and things had to be done a certain way. However this was all played, the facts are these. Henry lusted after Anne and wanted to make her his mistress. Anne refused for one of the reasons presented before. Henry continued to ask and ask and ask and continued to say no, and no, and no, before at some point, one or both of them made the decision that they would get married after Henry had left Catherine. This final part would have occurred in 1527 or so, because in the spring of that year, Henry started proceedings to dissolve his marriage. Now, of course, we know that he was beginning a process that would take the best part of a decade to complete, and would end up with ripping up England's relationship with the church, But of course, no one knew that at the time. Henry and Anne imagined that they would be getting married in a matter of months. He was not playing the long game because he didn't think he had to. He was playing the short game, and it would last for over seven years. Now, I went over the divorce process in pretty extensive detail in my episodes on Catherine, so I won't bore you all with doing it all again here. What I will do, though, is show the key events of it from Anne's side, as it looks very different from the other side of the net. We are always the central figures in our own stories, and it looks very different when seen through the eyes of Anne Boleyn. The first sign that the court would have seen that things were about to change came in May 1527, when on two consecutive nights, Henry danced with Anne in front of the court. The most famous of these was the second at a reception for the French ambassadorial delegation at Greenwich Palace. As we all know, one of the main duties of queenship was to be the royal hostess. She was the one who organised the parties, greeted the guests, and sat by the king's side at the head of the room. And this appeared at first to be no different. Henry and Catherine sat under a rich canopy, and all the guests, after a great feast, sat down to watch some performers sing, fight, and did all sorts of things to amuse them. After this was a masked dance, and Henry was amongst the gentlemen who entered the room in their dubious disguise. Each selected a partner and danced the night away. Of course, Henry chose Anne, and this was an indication of his favour for her. But of course, Henry had showed his favour for many young ladies of the court during his reign. Later that month, there were those secret meetings at Wolsey's residence at York Place, where the king revealed to a hastily convened court that he believed his marriage to be unlawful. The next month, it all came out when Henry informed Catherine of his plans. You may have noticed so far that I have barely mentioned Anne at all in any specific way, That is because, quite simply, we have no idea where she was. No English source mentions her and we only know about these two dances because of a French source. This would seem to be a case of Henry wanting Anne to lay low. He wanted the divorce from Catherine to be considered on its own merits and not to tie it in with his desire for Anne. The case that would be presented to the courts in England, Rome and indeed across Europe was purely concerned with the legality or not of his marriage to Catherine – Yet, of course, he was not a man for secrecy, and his plans to marry Anne were an open secret. Although dosed with a heavy cocktail of hindsight and no love for Anne, George Cavendish, in The Life of Wolsey*, portrays this spread of gossip well. Quote, then began other matters to brew and take place that occupied all men's hearts with diverse imaginations, whose stomachs were therewith fulfilled without any perfect digestion. The long-hid and secret love between the king and the mistress, Anne Boleyn, began to break out into every man's ears. The matter was then, by the king, disclosed to my lord cardinal, whose persuasion to the contrary made to the king on his knees could not affect. The king was so amorously affectionate that will bear place and high discretion banished for the first time. In the early years of the great matter, it was very much Henry who took the driving seat in the proceedings, not Anne as I already mentioned, she laid fairly low, though this was not just a matter of staying out of the public eye for political reasons. Between the spring and autumn of 1528, she retired to the family home at Hever Castle in Kent for fear of a deadly outbreak of sweating sickness that killed many prominent royal courtiers, including her brother-in-law William Carey and one of her fellow ladies of honour to Catherine of Aragon. This was when most of their surviving letters were sent, and you can hear the longing in Henry's letters. If you haven't already listened to them, then please pause this episode, listen to them, and then come back. Are you back? Good. Therefore, Anne was not at court for most of 1528, and so missed all the drama of the setting up of the Legatine court and the arrival of Campeggio. No doubt she was kept informed and could not have been best pleased with how it all went down. Much has been said of the relationship between Anne and Thomas Wolsey, Henry's chief minister and advisor, It is assumed that they disliked each other intensely, a view fueled by Wolsey's contemporary biographer Cavendish. He claimed that she allied with nobles who were jealous of his power and influence. they knew right well that it was very difficult for them to do anything directly of themselves, wherefore they, perceiving the great affection that the king bare lovingly for Mistress Berlin, fantasying in their heads that she should be for them a sufficient and an apt instrument to bring their malicious purpose to pass, and she having both a very good wit and also an inward desire to be revenged of the cardinal, was agreeable to their requests. This revenge that Cavendish mentions is a reference to Wolsey's influence in the breaking up of her engagement with Henry Percy that I talked about last episode. But as I said then, this seems all rather too perfect. What seems more likely is that Anne was being used by Wolsey's enemies to poison the king against his chief minister. The extent to which she was involved in this is not clear. It's easy to see her as being highly frustrated at Wolsey's lack of progress, but equally this is true of Henry – And so the image of Anne as this devil sitting on Henry's shoulder, whispering into his ear about who to ruin and who to execute, is just not accurate. That said, Woolsey was not wild about this whole divorce, as it rather ripped up all of his diplomatic plans. But he would also have objected to the choice of Anne, even if Catherine had not been in the picture. We've talked about this before with Elizabeth Woodville. Domestic queens offer very little advantage to a foreign minister they bring in no foreign alliance, and they rarely bring any kind of significant dowry. Annulling Henry's marriage was a hugely difficult and dangerous endeavour, and Anne offered very little reward from it in financial or political terms over a foreign bride. The image of Anne faction building in this time, though, does seem to be true. Catherine had a small but devoted block of supporters at court, and a huge backing from the people. What did Anne have? Well, she had her brother and father, who are both very influential courtiers, as well as her former admirer, Wyatt, but she needed more. She courted her brother-in-law, William Carey, by lobbying to get the post of Abbess of Wilton for his sister, but of course he died in the sweating sickness outbreak. Beyond these family members and former boyfriends, though, she managed to gain more supporters in key positions around the king, amongst his immediate entourage and privy chamber. This formed a significant power block against Wolsey, though it's fair to say that this block probably already existed before she came along. What she offered, though, was a nail that these men could hammer home to the king. You want this divorce. You made Wolsey responsible. He is failing deliberately. He must go. This view was shared, of course, by the queen and her entourage as shown by the letters of the imperial ambassador, which all formed a pincer movement around Wolsey. There is evidence, though, that she was not personally opposed to Woolsey until relatively late. They exchanged kind letters to each other, and she seems to have seen him as the best vehicle for gaining the annulment that she and the king wished. In 1529, though, it was becoming clear to all that no real progress was being made. At the beginning of that year, the wheels started to come off the train that was Wolsey's career, and of course the progress of the Legatine Court, or back thereof, sealed his fate, but I think it's wrong to see Anne as being the main instigator in this. Letters sent to Henry from his ambassadors in Rome suggest that he was in control of the whole situation, and that Anne was being kept in the dark. Now, you'll be shocked to hear that this is not the universal view, indeed it's not even really the popular view. David Starkey and Eric Ives, two big-name historians, both say that Anne was to a great degree behind the fall of Wolsey, but I think this rather does Henry a disservice. He was quite capable of firing his own ministers, and it was quite clear that the Cardinal had failed in his duty, even though it was perhaps an impossible task given the constraints placed upon him by Henry. People at the time certainly blamed Anne, most particularly Walter's biographer Cavendish, but it's important not to simply blame her for everything. That is, though, not to say that she was not involved in his fall. The people who brought him down did so in her name, and it's very unlikely that she would have shed a tear at his departure. She most certainly desired to be someone that Henry turned to for advice, and this was blocked by Woolsey. 1529 saw a gradual shifting of political gravity away from Woolsey to Anne, and this all culminated with his fall, arrest, and then death. Now you may notice that I was all rather vague in that, and that's because it's very easy in this to get bogged down in politics. I could write a whole 50-episode podcast at least on the great matter, but that would get away from this podcast's main goal which is to understand Anne herself. Her involvement in the fall of Wolsey is highly disputed, but whether she played a big or small role in it, there is no doubt that she was a part. Anne was not a shrinking violet. If she wanted Wolsey to go, and she felt it within her power to make it happen, then she would have pursued that goal. It was in her interest for Wolsey to go, and she had the power with the king to make the case to him using all the wiles that she had at her disposal. It may not have been part of some master Machiavellian plan that she had, but she was a part of his fall all the same. Just not the only part. Anne, in many ways, had a constituency of one in this matter. Her influence over the king was key to all, and she could often appear highly domineering. Remember the dressing downs that she gave him whenever he came off second best after talking with Catherine? Or how she railed against the man who brought Henry's shirts to the queen to have them mended by her? Henry was caught between these two incredibly strong-willed women, who were his intellectual superior, but we must not overstate this. Henry was a man of his own mind, and though Anne's influence was a very powerful one, it did not make him do things that he did not wish to do. In my episodes on Catherine, I charted the torturous journey that Catherine was put through by Henry throughout the divorce procedure. It was long, arduous, and unforgiving, but let's not forget it wasn't a bed of roses for Anne. While she was not the Queen, her position was always under threat. For the moment, she was the King's favourite, but should the winds change, should another pretty young thing at court catch his eye, she had no position to fall back on. She had everything to gain, but much to lose should she fall. There is an image of Anne that has her being immensely vindictive towards Catherine and Mary, but we must be careful with this, because this modern perspective comes almost exclusively from the pen of Eustace Chapuis, the Imperial Ambassador, and thus is highly untrustworthy. It was entirely for his and Catherine's benefit to portray Anne as the Wicked One, the awful heretical harpy who had ensnared the king and wished nothing but ill for the good, saintly wronged Catherine. Yet enough of his account can be verified to mean that it was most certainly dosed with a healthy helping of truth. It was Anne, for example, who prevented Henry from seeing Mary when she was ill because Anne feared the affection that Henry held for his only daughter might cloud his judgement. She comes across as quite a jealous woman, as shown by this incident and in the business with Catherine mending the king's shirts that I've talked about before. But to me this all comes from a position of insecurity. The annulment that Anne and Henry had thought would have all been done and dusted back in 1527 dragged on for years and years with little sign of real progress and it's perhaps understandable that Anne would want to limit Henry's exposure to his wife and daughter. Anne was also no fan of the Pope, of that there can be, no doubt. There is also no doubt that she was at very least indirectly responsible with the break with Rome. Henry would not have done this had it not been for his need for an annulment. Indeed, up until then, he had been a papal ally and a good Catholic. But was she more directly responsible? Well, again, there is debate. G.W. Bernard, in his usual contrarian manner, asserts that she did not really play a leading role, but I think this rather diminishes her position. Bernard is quite keen to disavow certain sources that disagree with his view, but cannot bring up others to positively support it. The more popular view, led by Ives, is that Anne did play a big role in this break. This is backed up by contemporary sources. We know that Anne introduced Henry to a copy of Tyndale's reformist and snappily titled book, The Obedience of the Christian Man and How Christian Rulers Ought to Govern. This book claims that the king derived his authority from God and answered to him alone, and that the subject was required by divine law to obey their king. This was not a playbook for what was about to happen, but it would have been catnip for a king who railed against the intransigence of the Pope. She was not only showing it to the king, but was sharing it about the court building a support base for passing spiritual authority from Rome to Henry. She had in her corner several reformist clerics, such as Thomas Cramner and Edward Fox, who continued to build this case, but again, let's not forget that Henry was his own man here. Anne did not twist and round her little finger and force him to make himself supreme head of the Church of England. He listened to the advice of those he trusted and took the path that they suggested. This does not make him weak, it just means that he could listen to advice. The final break with Rome and the acts of succession and supremacy were guided through Parliament by a man whose life and career shaped Anne's destiny more than any others, Thomas Cromwell. While Moore and Wolsey had been reluctant in their attempts to gain Henry his divorce, Cromwell saw the opportunity that Anne offered him, and he seized it. Anne had never had more support in court, and her family were in very prominent positions. Her brother was still one of Henry's key Privy councillors. Her father was Lord Privy Seal. Her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, despite not being Anne's greatest fan, brought his noble gravitas. Yet in 1532, it was clear that Henry was positioning to make Anne his queen. It was now that all but Catherine's most die-hard supporters at court deserted her. It was the obviously prudent thing to do given the political climate. But still, Anne was not queen. While it was very sensible for everyone to deny Catherine's queenship, Anne herself had not had that honour bestowed upon her. She had, though, been given a different title, and this was no courtesy. While the Boleyns were no hoi polloi, they were not of the usual rank that a Queen of England was expected to be from. Anne's mother was a Howard, but her father was only a Boleyn, and that would not do at all. Therefore, Henry created a new title for her, Marchioness of Pembroke. This was an august title. Henry's great-uncle Jasper Tudor, had been Earl of Pembroke, and it was expected that the title would then pass to Henry and Anne's future son. This added Anne to the roles of proper English nobility, allowing her to outrank every other woman in the kingdom, and a good many of the men as well, and the honour was bestowed upon her at a glittering ceremony at Windsor Castle in September 1532. She was wearing a surcoat of crimson velvet, furred with ermine, and was, according to one observer, quote, completely covered in jewels. She was led to the king by the peers of the realm, and there she knelt and was given the title and associated lands worth a £1,000 a year. This also had the handy jewel purpose of giving her an independent income, since of course she would come with no dowry. Armed with her new title, Anne would now accompany Henry off on a state occasion, playing the role of his wife, as he went off to Calais to greet King Francis. Given the fact that she had spent so many of her formative years at the French court, and had brought so many of its fashions and styles to England, it is unsurprising that Anne was an ardent Francophile, and was a close friend of the French ambassador Gilles de la Pommeray, providing a handy counterbalance with the alliance of Catherine and Eustace Chapuis. She greeted him with Henry when he first came to court in 1531, and he escorted her on hunts. She even hosted him at a dinner that she threw at her residence at Hanworth for Henry. This was all part of Henry and Anne's plan to woo the French. As has been previously shown, she could pull off a flawless impression of a native-born Frenchwoman. There was no better person to win over the French ambassador. She could be the go-between in a new Anglo-French axis. According to La Pomerée, her services to France were more than could ever be repaid. Anne was already proving that she could be as formidable a queen on the international stage as Catherine had been. Henry and Anne sailed together in October but if she had wished to be treated as the Queen, then she would have been disappointed. Diplomatic niceties had to be observed, and it would have been deeply embarrassing for the Queen of France to be directly matched with a mistress. Anne's former mistress, Queen Claude, had died since she had left France, and Francis had a new wife, Eleanor of Austria, who rather unhelpfully was Catherine of Aragon's niece, because it seems every royal family in Europe had some connection to Henry's rejected wife. Therefore, the English angled for a woman of equivalent rank from the French side to come along to balance out Anne. Such things are very important. It's why, for example, that even if a U.S. president is unmarried, he needs to have a first lady who can keep the spouses of foreign leaders entertained while the statesmen thresh out the fate of the world. They wanted Anne's former friend at court, Margaret of Angoulême, but at the last minute she withdrew, either because of some personal discomfort with the whole business or because Francis didn't want to annoy the Pope, whom he was courting as an ally. It was, however, not acceptable for Anne not to be introduced to Francis. It would have been seen as a slap in the face, not only to her, but more importantly, to Henry's honour. Therefore, a compromise was reached, where no ladies would be presented on either side. Anne would travel to Calais, and Francis would meet her there, but she would not be there in the part of the king's wife. This was Anne's first return to France since she had left almost two decades previously. Now she was there as the prospective bride of the King of England, and met by an honour guard accompanied by around 30 attendants. It was quite an entrance. For a week and a half, Anne and Henry played house together, acting for all the world as if they were man and wife. When Francis arrived, he sent a gift to Anne as a welcome, but they did not formally meet until a grand banquet that Henry threw for Francis the next day. After the food had been all consumed, Henry made her grand entrance. Here it is described in the Chronicle of Edward Hall. Quote, After supper came in the Marchioness of Pembroke with seven ladies in masking apparel of strange fashion made of cloth of gold, compassed with crimson, tinsel satin, owned with cloth of silver, lying loose and knit with laces of gold. The Lady Marquess took the French king and the Countess of Derby, took the King of Navarre, and every lady took a lord, and in dancing the King of England took away the ladies' visors, so that the ladies' beauties were shown, and after they had danced a while, they ceased, and the French king talked with the Marchioness of Pembroke of space, and then he took his leave of the ladies. After Francis had been escorted back across the border to Boulogne, Henry and Anne were played house for a little longer, as they waited for a great channel storm to break. The meeting with Francis had been a great success and it gave Henry and Anne the diplomatic cover to be less worried about a possible invasion by Charles V. And it is there, at this time, that their relationship changed forever. Either in Calais or on the journey back to London, she finally agreed to sleep with him. The reason why they slept together now is a matter of speculation. For those who take the view that it had been Henry, who had been holding back all this time, it seems rather curious that he should give in now while things were still up in the air. The wheels were in motion, but victory was still not confirmed. The same is true from Anne's perspective. She had been guarding her virginity so tightly to ensure that Henry would have to make her his queen in order to have sex with her. Why give it up now when she was so close? A solution is offered by Eric Ives. Could the real answer be that the decision to cohabit was a calculated initiative by Anne? The radical solution to the great matter was there for the taking all that stood in the way was Henry's indecision. Throughout their relationship, it had been Anne who had stiffened the king's resolve. Did she, even at the last, have to precipitate the decisive crisis, sure that if she became pregnant, Henry would have to act? Now, as I have said before, I'm not entirely on board with Ives' view of Anne as the power behind the divorce with Catherine. I think Henry was every bit as keen as she, but this idea of Anne stiffening his resolve is one that I can get on board with. Of course, like most things in this story, we can't know for sure, but we do know that back in England, Anne and Henry continued to cohabit with a measure of discretion that fooled no one, and shortly after their return, she and Henry were secretly married. Why all the rush and the secrecy? She was pregnant. Now things had to move fast. There was a rush to make sure that Henry's son, for of course it would be a son, must be born legitimately. This secret wedding was binding, of course, but something a little more public was required. But for that to happen, the whole matter of the annulment of his marriage with Catherine had to be formalised in law. And that was no easy matter. There had already been attempts the previous year to prevent the wedding from happening. Remember Henry Percy? Percy's marriage to Henry Talbot was an utter disaster, and they were separated by 1530. Talbot accused her husband of being pre-contracted to Anne Boleyn, of being betrothed, making her own marriage with Percy illegal and freeing her from her awful husband. Wanting this dealt with properly, so that there was no question of a cover-up, Anne brought this out personally with Henry, who ordered that Percy, now the Earl of Northumberland, be interrogated by both Archbishops in the presence of Anne's uncle, the Duke of Norfolk. There he swore in holy text that there was no pre-contract, and so the matter was dropped. For now. Now was Thomas Cranmer, the newly appointed Archbishop of Canterbury, and Thomas Cromwell's time to shine. Together, they steered through Parliament the various acts that were required to sever England's connection with Rome, which would allow Henry, as the supreme head of the Church of England, to make the decision on whether his marriage was lawful. The decisions were predictable, and Anne's marriage to Henry was therefore made valid by the fact that he had never been married to Catherine to begin with. And so, on Easter Saturday, 1533... Anne celebrated Mass, not as a courtier, not as Marchioness of Pembroke, but as Queen of England for the very first time. What a moment this was for her. Although she was yet to be crowned, this was an unveiling of sorts, and of course she looked the part. Not even Eustace Chapuis ruined it for her in this dispatch, though he could not bring himself to call her Queen. Quote, on the eve of Easter, Lady Anne went to mass in truly royal state, loaded with diamonds and other precious stones, and dressed in a gorgeous suit of tissue. She was followed by numerous damsels and conducted to and from the church with the same or perhaps greater ceremonies and solemnities than those used with former queens on such occasions. She has now changed her title of marchioness for that of queen, and preachers specially name her so in their church prayers. Now there comes time for a little dig. Quote, All the people here are perfectly astonished, for the whole thing seems a dream, and even those who support her party do not know whether to laugh or cry. Anne was now the king's acknowledged wife, and the Queen of England. But of course there was one rite that had not yet occurred, a coronation. It was not unusual, as we have seen, for queens to have to wait months or even years before being given a coronation. But in this case, speed was of the essence. Anne was still deeply unpopular with the people, but more importantly, it was considered important that their son, for of course it would be a son, to be born to a crowned queen. Nothing but the best for Anne and Henry's boy. The celebrations took place over four days. On the first, Anne was brought from Greenwich Palace to the Tower of London by barge in a great flotilla of over 300 boats. The company barges, of which there were 50, were about 70 feet long and dressed in the liveries of various city companies and packed with musicians and ceremonial cannon. One even contained a dragon which could move around and belch out fire. It still seems rather unsafe to me. Anne herself had her own barge with her principal ladies. Then there was another barge filled with ladies she didn't care about as much, and another for Henry. According to one observer, who is someone who has no regard for full stops, quote, The banners and pendants of the arms of their craft, the which were beaten of fine gold, illustrating so goodly against the sun and also the standards, streamers of the cognizance and devices, ventalling with the wind, also the trumpets blowing, shawms and minstrels playing, the which were a right sumptuous and triumphant sight to see and to hear all the way as they passed upon the water, to hear the said marvellous sweet harmony of the said instruments, the which sounds to be a thing of another world. They were greeted at the tower with more ceremonial cannon fire that continued from the moment they passed the bend in the river to their arrival at the dock, where they were greeted by the Lord Mayor. There were thousands of people lining the banks of the river to see this magnificent event, and even if their sympathies may have been with Catherine, they appeared to have been overwhelmed in the excitement of so lavish and so grand a spectacle. It was a masterful piece of theatre. After a couple of days spent in the tower, where various ceremonies were carried out, The time had come for the traditional procession to Westminster. There was a distinctly French flavour to proceedings. Anne herself was dressed in the French style, and it was led by twelve servants of the French ambassador, followed by the gentlemen of the royal household, the newly minted knights of the Bath, and then the key clergy and nobles of the land. Anne's litter was covered in gold, silver and white damask, and her hair was flowing down to her waist for all to see, symbolising virginity. Behind her came her ladies on horseback, and in various other carriages, and then the king and his men. They rode to the city, stopping at various pageants put on in their honour, where performers sang and danced for her, and she was presented with gifts. Now, when I was talked about this at school, I was told that the crowd heckled Anne on the way, that it was all rather a disaster. Well, really, it depends on who you believe, because the sources are all completely divided. John Goff wrote down an exhaustive account of the day, detailing everyone who was there and every stop that she made, and continually repeats that she was greeted, quote, with great praise and honour. Riothezle's Chronicle doesn't mention the public reaction, it's more a bland statement of fact. The problem is that this is all rather boring, and so people are far more inclined to believe people like Eustace Chapuis, who wrote down that this all was, quote, A cold, poor, and most unpleasing sight to the great regret, annoyance, and disappointment, not only of the common people, but likewise all the rest. Another sick burn from Chapuis there. Another hostile account states that the crowd did not cheer or remove their hats when she came by, and, most memorably to me as an eight-year-old, the people found that their initials, H.A., were amusing. Ha ha. Since there are not really any accounts of an enthusiastic welcome even in the more positive accounts, I think it's fair to say that this was not the most popular of coronation processions that the city had ever seen, and this certainly squares with the view that the people were hardly fond of their new queen. That said, I find it hard to believe that she was greeted with booze or complete silence, as some accounts would have us believe. It was a long day for Anne, and at six months pregnant it must have been utterly exhausting, but she still had the main event to go the following day, the coronation. Given the importance of this pregnancy, one would have been forgiven for wondering why they didn't take it a little easy, but all this pomp and ceremony was vital to the acceptance of Anne as Queen. It was considered worth the risk. I have described to you many Queenly coronations, and most of them are broadly the same, so I won't give you the blow-by-blow, blow, just a speedy account. The procession into the Abbey started at 7am, and it wasn't until 9 a.m. that Anne showed up. There were that many people. Special sands were erected, so that as many people as possible could be crammed in and Henry himself was behind a lattice screen so that he could watch it incognito, there was no room for a king at a queen's coronation. She was dressed in purple velvet, ermine and a gold coronet, and was anointed as queen by Archbishop Cramner, who also sang at the High Mass and physically crowned her. After a brief break for refreshment, everyone processed back across the road to Westminster Hall, when the feasting could begin, and no expense was spared there either. It was a huge success, but an incredibly expensive one. It was estimated that it might have cost Henry and the city as much as £75,000, which is a vast sum, but the point was to make an impact, and that it did. According to Eric Ives, quote, No doubt the elaboration, the attention to detail, the evident overkill, does indicate a measure of insecurity, and we must remember that all the participants knew that the king was watching. It had been a test, a sacrament of loyalty. The great of the land had dined to honour Anne Boleyn, their queen. They had drunk to their sovereign's new consort whatever their inner doubts. They had identified with her. After the coronation, there came her confinement, before the all-important birth of their son. For of course it would be a son. Is this joke starting to wear thin yet? It was, by all accounts, a very difficult final few months of pregnancy, and there was a great concern that Anne might not survive. However, On Sunday the 7th of September a baby was born in what was in the end a pretty easy labour and as I'm sure you all know slash have guessed it was not a son it was a girl. Now you might expect after all the trouble that everyone had gone to that everyone would have been crushed by this but actually it was seen as at worst a minor setback. Anne had proven in her first childbirth that she could do it successfully. Indeed, Henry's reaction seems to have been relief that both mother and child made it through all safely. Their daughter was named Elizabeth, presumably named for Henry's mother, as well as Anne's. Letters were sent out far and wide to proclaim and celebrate the birth of the princess, and a christening was planned for three days later. These proclamations had been prepared in advance with the word Prince on them, and so everyone had to be discreetly altered to add some S's to the end. The christening itself will be marked by bonfires and, most excitingly, free wine for all Londoners. Why didn't we get this when Prince George was born? That's my question. This christening seems to have been a sort of mini-coronation at the Church of the Observant Friars. This was a dig at the friars, who you may remember were ardent supporters of Catherine. The ceremony was as much a triumphant procession of Anne's court faction as anything else. Elizabeth was born by the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, The Duke of Norfolk served as Earl Marshal, her father supported the baby's train, her brother helped carry the canopy above her, and Archbishop Cramner served as godfather. This may not have been the birth that everyone wanted, but everyone was determined to make the best of it, for surely sons were soon to come. I'm going to leave it there for today, and for your bumper month of shows. We're moving back to our regularly fortnightly schedule in March. Next time, we will look at Anne's relatively brief reign as Queen, as she sought to consolidate her position by giving Henry his all-important son, as well as maintain her position as a powerful voice at court. As we shall see, this didn't turn out so well.